And again, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And if you're there, I'd like to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. And this, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through by making peace, through His blood shed on the cross. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. God, we thank you as we will see this morning that you, you are sovereign over all. You are sovereign over creation to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Who's in charge? You know, this past Sunday, something interesting happened in the NFL world, in the football world. I know some of you aren't football fans, Carolina Panthers. And at the end of the game, something very interesting happened. The Bucks, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they were beating the Panthers 31-17. to So that's a two-touchdown lead with six minutes left to go in the game. And so it shouldn't have been surprising that with six minutes left in the game, they had the ball, they were up by two touchdowns, the coach would pull out the... You know, the coach is thinking about the playoffs. He knows that, that they're in the playoffs. They have some playoff games they want to win. The goal of every football player is to win a Super Bowl. They don't play unless they want to win, and they're trying to win a Super Bowl. So, so why keep the star quarterback in the game when it's very unlikely that they will lose? Why risk him getting injured? Quarterback to go in. There's video of it on the internet. Tom Brady put his helmet on, looked back, and told the, the second-string quarterback to sit down. That he was going back in. And as he's walking by Bruce Arians, the coach, he's like, Tom, what are you doing? Go sit down. And Tom looked at the coach and he's like, I'm going in. And Tom Brady refused to listen to the coach. Now, the reason for this is because Tom Brady knew something. He knew that his tight end and longtime friend, Rob Gronkowski, was one catch away from receiving a half a million dollar bonus. One catch. And he gets $500,000. I might be in the wrong field. He knew that the backup quarterback likely wouldn't throw the ball. I mean, when you're up by two touchdowns, you don't want to throw the ball, risk an interception. You're just going to run it. You're probably not going to get first downs, but you're up by two touchdowns. You can waste some clock, six minutes. You're going to come out with the victory. And so Tom knew that the, the quarterback probably wasn't going to throw it. And if he threw it, it probably wouldn't be to his tight end. Mankowski got his $500,000. Now, that might seem like kind of a fun story, but it actually raised a lot of questions among journalists and sports reporters over this week. I read quite a few headlines, one of which I read, and many of them asking the same question is, who is really in charge of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? But the answer in the playoff question, good teams, there are times in football games where there's a lot at stake, and the problem comes when players don't know who to look to. 
If you, if, you're, if you have a coach who's going one direction and a quarterback who's going another direction, there will inevitably be friction among the team and confusion. There will be division and turmoil because the players won't know who to look to. This can happen in the church as well. When there are questions about who's in charge of the church, who is the church for, what is this all about, where is the church going, what's its purpose, when we are unsure how to answer these questions, confusion and division is sure to follow. But even more dangerous, be misdirected. And this passage that we just read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, is Paul wanting his readers to recognize and worship the right thing. It's, it's Paul making a case for who is actually in charge. And so let me set the stage a little bit for you before we, before we jump in here. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae. is actually thriving. Listen to what Paul says about the church beginning in verse 4. He says, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this, this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it is among you since... So this is the church Paul is writing to, a church that he says, man, we hear about you, we look at you, we see your faith, we see the gospel going forth and spreading not only in the world, but it's doing things in your church. That's a testimony that any church wants, right? That the gospel is being proclaimed and things are changing. But there's a problem brewing in the church of Colossae. It's a problem that kind of give you Gnosticism in a nutshell. What, what Gnosticism is is it was a belief that the material or the physical world, so our bodies and trees and grass, the things you can touch and feel and smell, it was a belief that all ground is evil. Everything that is material is evil. And all that mattered was the immaterial, the mind, the spirit, things of that nature. But they also believed that God would not touch the physical world because of how wicked it was and so what he did is he used intermediaries to create the world because God could not touch something as wicked as the physical world. And to embrace Christian ideas, but they struggled with one major component of Christianity. Can you guess what it is? The word became flesh. They struggled with the incarnation, with Jesus being God in flesh. And so they began to argue in the church. It was, it was beginning to, to be heard and sent by God, but he wasn't God in the flesh. In essence, what they were doing is they were attempting to dethrone Jesus. And so it raises a question. It raised a question for the church in Colossae. Colossae, if Jesus is not God, if he is not who he said he was, then who's in charge of this thing? And so they were calling. Now, when we consider that, it reminds us of the fact that the church in Colossae is not that different from the church today. We, too, are challenged to compromise. We, too, are tempted to place things in the place of Jesus and worship lesser things, even in the church. You see it in both conservative and liberal churches where social issues have replaced Jesus in the church. 
You see it in many Christians across multiple denominations and countries where the individual participant, I'm talking about you and me, where we have replaced Jesus, where we are tempted to walk into this place thinking that what we do in this place is when we exit. We have replaced Jesus in the church. But what Paul presents in our text in beautiful poetic language is the truth that this is about, but even more, not only is it about him, it exists in him, through him, and for him. And so Paul's writing here in Colossians 1 verses 1 through 15, it's very interesting. It was, it was a great joy to study this passage of scripture because I learned things about it that I never knew. Don't you love that, how you can be studying no so well? But Paul's writing here is very interesting because in the middle of this letter to Colossians, Colossians, those, those verses that we just read, it's Paul breaking out into a hymn. I appreciate, I don't know how your Bible has it written. I know the, the, the CSB, I think, keeps it in paragraph form. But, but if, if you have, the ESV keeps it in para, paragraph form. But if you have a CSB, what I was reading from, it, in the Psalms, he, he, they want us to know that this isn't just narrative. This isn't just paragraph that Paul, in the middle of this letter, breaks out into him. He breaks out into poetry. He starts worshiping God. And it has a poetic structure to it, which this was mind-boggling to me. And, and I'm not going to go too much into it. If you want to see it, I've got it all mapped out on a sheet of paper. I love this stuff. But, but it has a song this morning, and it truly is a beautiful hymn. But, but it's quite simple in nature. Paul is trying to communicate one thing and one thing alone. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is in charge. And Paul's going to focus on two specific areas to make this case. Here's the first. Paul is going to argue that Jesus is supreme in creation. He begins in verse 15, and this is what he writes. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. That's amazing. I think we can read stuff like that and it's become so common to us. That is amazing. And with this statement, Paul goes right to the heart of what many in Colossae were being tempted to believe. Because what was the heresy? That Jesus isn't God. So, so Paul just starts out and he goes for the throat. He is the image of the invisible God. He declares unequivocally that Jesus is the image of God. Now we have to unpack what that means. And the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, helps us to do that. He writes that the Son, sure, why? Because Jesus is God. John says it like this in John 1.18. You might remember it from our Christmas series. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, but he has was trying to communicate to us. Let's go back to Hebrews 1 for just a minute, and let me read what, what comes before verse 3. The author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. That's very important. God spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through him, or through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, here's, here's the thing, church. Since the beginning of time, God has spoken. Since the beginning of time, God has spoken, but did not see God. Elijah heard the whisper of God in a cave, but he did not see God. 
Isaiah had a vision of a throne room where he caught a glimpse of the glorious robe of God and he was undone, but he did not see God. But now, Christ has come. And not only have we heard the voice of God, but we have seen his glory in Jesus Christ. What was now untouchable, you can feel. What was now unseen. But notice Notice what Paul says next. Not only is this Jesus the image of the invisible God, but he says that he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, we have to be careful to understand what Paul is and is not saying here. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the very next verses will refute the idea of Jesus being created. We also know this from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so when Paul says firstborn, he's not talking in chronological terms. Epitome of what creation should have been. That he is the first, he is supreme, he is ahead of, he is what we failed to be. Because remember, at one time, Israel was called God's firstborn. Exodus 4.22, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. You see it again in Jeremiah 31, verse 9. They will come weeping, but I will bring them back. Stumble, for I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Even King David is identified as the firstborn of God in Psalm 89, verse 27. He says, I will also make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. But both Israel and their great King David failed to be that which God intended them to be. They could not live up. When Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus overcame in the wilderness. When Israel failed to fulfill the law of God, Jesus fulfilled the law of God. When David, what David failed to accomplish, not in uniting the kingdoms together, but in uniting the hearts of the people to the perfect image of God. And if that was not enough to prove Jesus' supremacy over creation... Paul's going to give us his resume, starting in verse 16. Look at what Paul says. For everything was created in him. For rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and to him or unto him. Now, in this verse, Paul introduces us to a sequence that's not only present here, but it's going to be present in the second section. The sequence in him, through him, and to him. Now this sequence would lay out in him, through him, and to him. So I've updated the translation a little with, with some accurate Greek. But there are three parts to this sequence, and they're all telling us something about the resume of Jesus. First, in him. Paul says, for everything was created in him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, very interesting phrase, because it's written in the Greek in the aorist tense. And what the aorist tense indicates is a one-time completed action. He did it, it was done. It means that everything that exists, exists because of Jesus. Now, maybe everything that exists exists because of Jesus. So let me, let me try to say it this way and maybe, maybe get our juices flowing a little bit. There was a time before time when the beginning of time found its beginning in Jesus. There was a time when there was nothing but the triune God. And he, now I know that there are many of you who, like me, have a lot of questions about the creation of the world. 
Has it been here a long time? Is it old? Is it young? Were they seven literal days? Or is Moses using figurative speech? Did God make a mature earth? And if so, what does that imply? And here's the thing. I don't have the answers to all those questions. But when with nothing, looking at nothing, spoke and there was something. He's that powerful. And make no mistake, that power is not just reserved for creation. That power is displayed in your life as well. Now, I'm, I'm trying hard not to get too excited this morning because y'all aren't with me. But Paul is saying to make something out of nothing. He didn't need no tools. He didn't need no blueprints. He didn't need a plan. He didn't need any counsel. When he spoke, things happened. God has never needed you to have a plan for him to accomplish what he wants in your life. God has never needed you to have a direction for him to get you where he wants you. Our God is an expert at taking nothing and making something. So let me just encourage you this morning. If you feel weak in this place, if you feel needy and you are sitting there feeling broken, you are the perfect candidate for the power of God to be put on full display because he does not need you to have anything to make something in him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. Here it is. And all things have been created through him. Now, in this part of the sequence, the Greek changes. I love the Greek. I really do. I nerd out for it. I try to not bore you with it, but it gets me sometimes. Because some, in the first part of the sequence, the, the, the created in him was written in the heiress. Remember, a one-time completed action and it's done. But here, when it says that all things have been created through him, the tense switches and it switches to the perfect tense. Now again, where the heiress tense signified a one-time completed action, the perfect tense causes us action. So let me say this. Jesus created the world. and He didn't walk away from it. He continues to sustain it. The very world that rebelled against him exists because he refuses to let it go. And Paul sums up these first two parts of the sequence, the in him, by him, all things hold together. By him, all things hold together. Now listen, I remember, I remember hearing the greatest preacher of our generation, the Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, I don't care what you think, he is the greatest preacher of our generation. I remember hearing him preach in chapel. It was about five, six years ago at the Southern Seminary. And I was, as I was preparing this, it was like the Lord just said, go look at those notes. I was like, I think, I think, I think Dates gave us something here. And, 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 and the Reverend Dr. Dates told this story. And I'm, I'm going to tell it too. And I'm going I'm to tell it a little bit like he told it, just because he gave the details better. But it, it was the story of when Billy Graham, y'all know who Billy Graham is? Y'all know who Billy Graham is? Okay, all right, I'm just making sure. If not, we were just going to do that. He told the story. It's a true story. When visit, Billy Graham visited the Atomic Research Center in, in Tennessee. There's an Atomic Research Center there. And so Billy Graham, I don't, you know, he, he knows the Bible and Jesus, but he's not an expert when it comes to scientific theories. And so there he was sitting with some of the world's greatest minds, listening for hours as they explain no, right? 
He listened as scientist after scientist expounded on theories and hypotheses about how the universe works and, and how this interacts with this and this thing can meet this thing and change into this thing and how black holes can just suck everything in it. And he's listening. And as the story goes, after a few hours, there was one scientist who at least had a moment of in. Here's the thing. I understand in theory how the universe works. But what I don't understand is how all of this holds together. You see, we, we have to understand just how vast the expanse of the universe is. And, and on top of that, how delicate it is. Take the earth for just an example. The earth sits at an axial tilt of 0.93 hours. That's the speed. The earth right now is spinning at a speed of approximately 100, or I'm sorry, 1,000 miles per hour. Consider for just a moment that if the earth was tilted one degree away from the sun, we would all freeze to death. If it was tilted just one degree closer to the sun, we would all... Two miles per hour, gravity would cease to work. And if it sped up just a little bit faster, we would all be flung into the expanses of space. The earth is delicate... It holds together perfectly, and the scientist Billy Graham, without missing a moment, as the story goes, after hours of listening, he spoke up and said, oh, I, I can do that one. I know how it all holds together. Jesus is holding it together. And all, church, I would argue this morning that for most of you, your presence in this place this morning testifies that God is holding it all together. Have you ever considered for just a moment how you are no different than so many people out there? You are no different. You have felt the sting of loss in bodies have failed to work as they should. We have wrestled through depression and anxiety. We have suffered disappointment and unrealized expectations. We have had people walk out on us. We have had the rug pulled out from under us. We have experienced the pain of living in a broken world. And the same thing that so many out there have experienced, we have turned to drugs and drinking and sex and the earthly pleasures to try to find some joy in the this world and it broke them and the question that we have to ask is how is it that we held it together well I would submit to you this morning that you did not hold it together but that there is a God in heaven and a Jesus who loves you has been holding on to you justifies that he holds it all together maybe it's just me I would have broken a long time ago and what Paul is trying to get the church to see <laughs> is that there's just something about this Jesus. There's no one like him. He is the incomparable. He is immutable omnipotence. He is the omniscient king. He is the rightful ruler of all of creation, and he holds it all together. But before we can move on, we have to look at the last part of the sequence here in this first section. Because Paul writes... For everything was created, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and here it is, and unto him. It's, it's for him. Paul says that Jesus made everything. He upholds everything, and it is all for him. It is for his, but as we know, it didn't work out that way because things broke in this world. That's what the garden tells us, doesn't it? That God 
created Adam and Eve to have this libertarian freedom in the garden. They had the ability to choose what was right and to choose what was wrong. And we don't know how long they walked with God, but they walked with God. But what once wasn't appealing started to become appealing to that we've been there. That sin we never thought we would go to. It was gross to us, disgusting, and yet here we are in the midst of it. And when Adam and Eve sinned as our federal heads, the world broke. And Adam and Eve sinned in fellowship glory. We cannot give him the honor that he is rightly due. Now, don't forget this. So after the world broke, Jesus had two options. Destroy it or make it new. I praise God that he chose the latter. See, here's the, the second section, the second idea that Paul wants us to see. Not only is Jesus supreme in creation, a new creation. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to him on the cross. So a shift has taken place in, in Paul's hymn of praise. We know a shift has taken place at the beginning of verse 18. And again, if you were looking at the sections of the poem, you'd see it pretty clear visually. But Paul, a shift in the church. So Paul has now moved. He was at first looking at creation, but now he's looking at the new creation. He's looking at the church. You could say he's moved from Genesis to the new Genesis. Paul wants to make it clear. Here it is. That Christ is not only the head, our answer right there to who's in charge. Christ is supreme when it comes to the church. Just as Paul was building his case for Jesus being supreme in creation, because Paul didn't want to just say it. I like that about Paul. It's not that Paul just wants to drop the truth and say, believe it. He's going to explain it to you. And so as he built the case for Jesus being church, and he follows kind of what he did there in, in verse 15, it mirrors it a little bit. So in verse 18, it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have preeminence in everything. So in verse 15, he was the image. In verse 18, he is the beginning. In verse 15, he is the first. Paul is building his case that when it comes to the church, oh, make no mistake, I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. The best of pastors, they're, they're not in charge. Jesus is the head of the church. When it comes to the church, the beginning of the church because he is the firstborn of the dead. And we've got to understand that, that beginning, kind of like we understand it with creation. He's not saying chronologically he's the beginning. Although chronologically he is the beginning. He's speaking theologically. He is the supreme ruler of the church. He is of unpacking so we don't misunderstand it. He says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, you may be thinking, well, hold on. Jesus was not the first person to raise from the dead. He was not. What about when Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17 from death? What about when Jesus raised the widow's son in Luke 7? Or Jarius' daughter, what our, what our little kids are studying about this week, 
When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke 8. Or what about Lazarus in John 11? Plenty of people have raised from the dead prior to Jesus. How is it that he is the firstborn from the dead? Well, here it is. Son, Elijah raised from the dead, died again. The son, Elisha raised from the dead, died again. The son and daughter that Jesus raised would die again. Lazarus, the one for whom Jesus wept, he would die again, but early on that Sunday morning. After they put nails in his hands and his feet. rose from that grave early on Sunday morning. He rose unlike anyone else because he would never die again. He rose with victory in his hand. And at this moment, Jesus is very much alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And why did he do it? So that he might come to have preeminence in everything. He is supreme in creation and he is supreme in the new creation. Now, I think the hymn could have stopped there. But Paul wants to add a bridge on. If that wasn't enough, Paul says, oh, I only gave you the first part of the resume. Let me give you the second part real quick. Versus that sequence. For in him, all God's fullness was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile everything to himself. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross fullness was pleased to dwell this is a reminder that the ruler of our church is not just some mere mortal man he is not simply the best of humans though he was but even more he is God in flesh you might be thinking well how have I seen Jesus Well, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see him perfectly clear. We have seen the Father because we have seen the Son. But not only is it in him, the church is through him. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. There is no way we can be in the church without Jesus. Now hear me, you may be present with the church when they gather, but without Jesus you can never be in the church, that's why we say all the time, the church, the church ultimately isn't for the lost. Church, well, yeah, we want to hear. It's for those who are in Christ, who have been reconciled through Christ. Let me say it like this. There's no way we can do church without Jesus. That's what he means when he says through him to reconcile everything to him. What Paul wants us to see is there is not a th- all can be reconciled through Jesus because his sacrifice was sufficient. And again, how did he do it? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The church exists because the gospel is true. We are in the church because the gospel is true. Because though, like we said, felt as well. Every one of us is separated from God. And don't forget, Jesus was holding two options in his hand. Destroy it or make it new. But he loved us so much that rather than give up on us, he wanted to continue to hold on to us. And he loved us so much that that Jesus came in the flesh to walk this ground. To live the life. And he died. But then he got up. 
He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And the beginning of the church was formed. Done for us. This is the gospel. But I don't want you to miss this. The church, redeemed by the blood of, the, of Jesus, is not just made better. It is a new creation. Paul will say this very thing in 2 Corinthians 5, so away and see the new has come. We're not waiting for God to make all things new. He has already started. He started with the church. The theologian N.T. Wright says it like this. He says, the redemption achieved in Christ is indeed a new genesis. The church really is the new. I'm sorry, this truth really does have implications for what we do in this place. It reminds us that we can't do church without Jesus. We can't be the church without Jesus. Again, I, th- I think often, we, all the time, we as pastors hear that all the time. Well, why'd you leave your church? It just wasn't doing it for me. I could care less. It didn't make me feel great. So? I don't know, man. The fellowship wasn't all that I thought it would be. Okay. But did they make much of much that we still benefit from being in the church? There are blessings and there is grace to be found here. There is fellowship. There is joy. There is community. But ultimately, this isn't about what I want. It's not about what you want. It's about what he deserves. And we've gotten it twisted in that, man, we can do church and we do and We talk about him every now and again. Or he's part of the focus, but he's not all there is. What Paul is communicating is that he is the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have preeminence in every eminent. He can't just be present in the church. He has to be preeminent. He's not just something. He's everything. He is not the first among equals because there are no equals. All that we are is in him and all that we have is through him. And all praise is due to him. To him be glory. Church. And so let me end by saying this. If he is supreme. He will sustain. The good news of Jesus' supremacy is that the success of the church has never depended on us. It's never depended on how well we worship, though we should worship well. It's never depended on our fellowship. It's never depended on our programs. Praise God, it's never depended on your pastors. The success of the church has always depended on the sufficiency of the Savior. And can I tell you this morning, He is a sufficient on us. He is a sufficient guide. The function of the church has never depended on us because He's good at working it out. It has always been and it always will be all about Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that you are supreme in creation, that you are supreme in the church. And my prayer this morning, God, is that we would recognize that. It's somewhat easy to come into this place 
and to talk about it, God. That you are supreme in all things, that you are supreme over this. God, there's going to come moments in our day. For some of us, it might even come today when we will be tempted to believe that we are better, that we are supreme, and that we know what we need more than you do. And so my prayer, God, is that like Paul, when we consider Jesus, that we too will break out into a hymn of praise. You are enough, that you are sufficient, and that you are our Savior. God, I also pray that we, this church, New Breed Church, would never forget that you rule over this place and that you rule over this people. And so may all we do be to magnify your name for you. Amen.